True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and this is episode 24, The Murder of Connor Isaacs. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to give a shout out to our new Patreon subscribers, Heidi and Yolandi Bester, who increased her Patreon support from last week, as well as Shannon Treber for her PayPal donation. Thank you so much to each and every one of you for supporting True Crime South Africa, and also to our existing supporters who faithfully donate every month. You guys are amazing and your support goes a long way to helping the show to grow and expand. If you're in a position to support the show, I'll leave our Patreon and PayPal links in the show notes. As always, I appreciate every form of support, whether it's financial, sharing of episodes on social media, inviting your friends to listen, or even just downloading and listening to our episodes. Every bit helps. Today's episode is a little bit different from my usual format in a few ways. Firstly, this is an ongoing investigation, and the case has not gone cold. Those of you who've followed the podcast for a while will know that I usually don't cover ongoing investigations, as there's always the possibility that something that I say could negatively impact the investigation. A few weeks ago, though, I saw a post on the Facebook page of a private investigator called Noel Pratton. He was discussing a case involving the murder of a young boy called Connor Isaacs. As you will learn, Connor was murdered in his home in March last year. But as Noel mentioned in his post, his case hasn't gotten the media attention it deserved and he suggested that this might be because Connor was not a young girl. Now, that got me thinking. And honestly, I don't think he's too far off the mark. We have this phenomenon in South Africa that I refer to as the invisible victims. Some victims get a huge amount of press attention. There's a major outcry about their case, and as a result, their investigations are often pressed forward, simply because there's so much pressure to resolve the case. Other victims get nothing. If they're lucky, they get a passing mention in an article, and their investigations often get buried under the enormous amount of work that we know SAPS detectives have. I've tried figuring out what the deciding factors are between these very public victims and the invisible ones, and it's pretty difficult to tell, really. It's not race. Three so-called invisible victims that I can think of offhand, Amahle Tibete, Tracy Thompson, and now Kana Isaacs, are all from different race groups. In some cases, like Kana's, It may be a gender thing to a certain extent. But mostly, I think it's this unspoken societal grading system where between the mainstream media, 
the public, and the authorities. We decide which victims are more important than others. You may balk at the word we, but it's true. You and I are part of this too. We consume the content, we drive the headlines, and we decide which cases to talk about. Of course, it goes deeper than that. I think that victims become invisible when we decide that the crime committed against them was somehow inevitable. People who live in certain areas do we even think twice when someone gets killed in a known gang area. People who do certain jobs that we deem high risk, whether that's a policeman or a sex worker. People who live high-risk lifestyles, like drug addicts. Those are the cases that just seem to be somehow lower on the interest scale. Connor, however, doesn't fit into any of those boxes. And that's why I think that Noel's idea that his gender is the reason actually makes sense. If we heard about a young girl who was murdered in her own home, and one year later there was still no resolution to the case, we would all be losing our minds. So today is about Connor, about who he was, and what he still means to his grieving family. It's about levelling the playing field for once, and refusing to allow anyone to become an invisible victim. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. One of the other reasons that today's episode is different from usual is that I actually got to meet and interview Connor's parents and Noel Pratton in person. So you'll be hearing much more than just my voice today. To begin with, and before I get into the details of the case, I'd like to introduce you to Connor Isaacs. Hello everybody, and it's me, Connor. Now today, I've had some thoughts, but stuff. People in my class have told me I'm a really good troll. Do something, and I think you guys would like it. What do you think? Huh? 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 And this is a sponsors. I like dancers. This is my name, my favorite color, teal. This is some. Dude, I mean, and this is a South African flag. Hi guys! That audio is from Connor's YouTube channel. On it, he discusses many of the things he likes. Drawings, dinosaurs, his favourite colour, which is teal, apparently. He sounds just like any other boy, doesn't he? albeit with a pretty big personality. I wanted you to hear Connor speaking, so that you start this episode with his voice in mind. I thought that was important, 
because today he doesn't have that voice anymore. He doesn't get to talk about dinosaurs or drawing or gaming anymore because someone decided that they had the right to take Connor's voice away when they took his life. After I saw that Facebook post by Noel Pratton, we got in touch with each other and arranged a day to get together. While I've spoken to the victims of crime and their families on the phone before, this would be the first time that I would be meeting the parents of a murdered child in person, so I was a little bit nervous. I wanted to do justice to their story and get it right. I had no idea what to say. What do you say to someone who's suffered the ultimate loss and is still living with the aftermath? When I arrived at our meeting place, Connor's parents were waiting outside in their car. And from the moment I met them, my nerves dissolved because I realized that the little bit of anxiety that I was experiencing was absolutely nothing compared to what they were feeling. Connor's dad, Keith, greeted me. We had an awkward moment as we'd just been told we weren't allowed to shake hands anymore. And then we started chatting while Connor's mom took a few moments to herself in the car before getting out. Keith immediately strikes me as a hard-working, strong man. He'd taken time off from work to do the interview with me and would be heading straight back there afterwards. As we chatted, Bridget Williams got out of the car. If you didn't know what Bridget had been through, you would have no idea on first meeting her. Her eloquence was the first thing that struck me. She carries herself with grace and is perfectly put together. She would later tell me that her counsellor has taught her some coping mechanisms for situations like this, and it shows. Her calm exterior belies the storm that is raging inside her. I set up my equipment and Keith, Bridget and I chat with Noel Pratton, their private investigator. Keith hired him after months of feeling like his son's case was going nowhere. I followed Noel's work on Facebook for a while and I'm honoured to meet him. He has been in the industry for over 30 years and closed some very high-profile cases. Noel's not the stereotypical PI, though. He has this way of looking at things that surprises me. As we chat, I appreciate how open they're being with me about the case, and I can see the passion in Noel about this case. He wants justice for Connor, and it's more than just a job for him. He takes it personally. I guess sometimes you have to, to get the job done. That brings me to another thing that'll be different about today's episode. Usually, as you know, I would bring you every detail I can find about the case. Today, though, I'll be holding a few things back. That's not because I don't want to share them with you, but because sharing them right now at this critical moment, could harm Connor's case, and I'm not going to do that. 
You can be assured, though, that the minute this offender is behind bars and I get the green light, you will get a follow-up episode with all the information. Before I start recording, I explain to Connor's parents what I have in mind. As you all know, True Crime South Africa is a victim-focused podcast. I won't cover a case if I can't tell you something about who the victim was in life. Because there aren't statistics. There aren't names on a piece of paper. They're human beings with families and parents, like the two people I'm sitting in front of. I ask Connor's parents to focus on telling me about who their son was, on the happy memories, on the things that make them smile when they think about him. The things that made Connor, Connor. Noel will be able to give me the specifics of the case, but no one can tell me who Connor was like his parents can. They seem relieved, perhaps a little surprised. And I wonder if they thought I'd be drilling them for information, for salacious details, to feed my hungry listeners. I tell them that people that listen to my podcast are not there for the drama or the gore value. If anyone listens to True Crime South Africa to get what they can get from mainstream media, then they've come to the wrong place. I explain the recording process. And Bridget asks if she can go first. Then she asks Noel for tissues. I remind her that if she needs to stop at any time, we can do that. And so, she sits in front of my microphone and gets ready to tell her story. The story of her son, of his life, and of his death. She starts out by giving us some background on why her, Keith, and Connor have different surnames. Not that it's any of our business, but it does give some background to Connor's life. And it actually makes me understand one of the reasons why he was such an amazing kid. I'm Bridget Williams. I'm Connor Isaacs's mom. Connor carries my maiden surname because I wasn't married to Keith, his father. I raised Connor single-handedly Although his father was present at his birth, it was an unplanned pregnancy. Connor, from the time that he was born, was such a delight. He was a delightful person. He was a happy person. I can't remember Connor being unhappy or even describing an incident of unhappiness as his mom. I was headhunted for a job in Johannesburg and Connor and I relocated there. And we lived there for um, a number of years. He was intelligent from day one. He was brilliant. He wasn't your average child in that sense. I worked for a large corporate oil and gas company in Johannesburg. And I had to travel a lot. And I had an OPE for Connor from a Wits University. And we had a living helper. Eventually, the VIT student had to go and do an internship as a doctor. And her sister, who was studying law, then decided to take over as OP for Connor. She then had to go and do her articles in law. And then her mom, Di, took over to take care of Connor. Connor became everyone's child. 
we used to come down to Cape Town a lot and, and when I travelled overseas I would used to fly him down because I knew I'd be away for a while. And then let his dad know we're in Cape Town, Connor's here and dad would come and fetch Connor and spend time with him. We used to live with my cousin in Weinberg in Cape Town and the minute everyone knew Connor was in Cape Town, it was a big thing. Everyone fussed because Connor was in Cape Town. Whatever plans were made would be cancelled because Connor was in Cape Town. And that is the nature of the person. Um, in grade two, he became the ambassador for his school. Um, Connor contested against high school students in the Santon precinct from that age. And he, it was never a competition for him, but he always came first. He was an amazing writer. He could tell you about dinosaurs and read at the age, fluently at the age of three. He, he would write his own stories. When he could start writing at the age of five, he had produced his own comic book, which I was very impressed by. It had shout outs in it. And it was hilariously funny because it's really what his thought patterns were that he had transferred into his, his book. He was a reader. He still, right up until the day he died, Connor was a reader. More importantly, at a very young age, he could read and understand what, what he had read and relate what he had read. So you could interrogate him and he'd give you that version. My, my parents used to come up to Johannesburg intermittently. My father's since passed. My mom and dad were obviously his grandchild, but also very impressed by him, especially my dad. And Connor would always say to him, Grandpa, I will read to you, you know. And it wasn't about Grandpa reading to him. He would read to Grandpa. And the same thing happened to me. I mean, Mom, because I just skip a couple of pages <laughs> when I had to read to him. he say, Mom, that, that's not how the story reads. <laughs> and let me read to you. <laughs> and so Clemmy, one of his uncles has also passed away, used to tease him a lot and deliberately also read to him. So everybody had to read. He read, and so everyone had to read. He loved dinosaurs, and everybody had to sit and listen to his stories about time, up until the day he died. Connor, since the age of three, was consistent, up until the day he died, that he was going to become a paleontologist. We used to joke that we always knew a couple of fossils he could study, and he'd say, Mom, that's not nice, and, you know, we'd laugh about it. Up until that moment, it's lovely stories about Connor that really give you a good idea of who he was. If it wasn't for the fact that Bridget says, up until the day he died, you would never know that this wasn't just a proud mom talking about her child, who at any minute could walk through the door, giggling and joking and talking about dinosaurs. Then Bridget turns the conversation, and suddenly, there's no doubt that we're talking about a tragedy. What I need to say is that he's never going to realise his dream of a paleontologist. He was passionate about paleontology. His father will tell you how much work Connor would put into understanding paleontology, the understanding of dinosaurs. So I would try and take him to places where you could relate to dinosaurs. Like in Mapumalanga, there are some caves, for example. 
or get him literature because he was a reader. Connor had more books in his room than an average child who'd have toys in its room. And that continued until the day he died. When he went to high school, he, he actually said, Mom, I'm going to need to choose my subjects. And I said, yeah, and, and Mom wasn't the, like crazy about the paleontology thing. I'm thinking, this is South Africa. Where are you going to get, you know, what are you going to study? So um, I would always encourage him to follow his dream. But I also would say to him, why don't you just do a BSc degree first? In, in fact, you'd have to do that and then specialise in paleontology. And then you'd have to go back to Johannesburg and study at Wits because that's got the best faculty in that. And, and he'd look at me as so like, um, yeah, I suppose so. But his dream was paleontology. There was nothing could have convinced him otherwise. So up until this point, Connor had lived with his mom in Joburg. He would see his dad when they travelled down to the Cape, and his dad would come up to Joburg for events. As Connor got older, though, quite naturally, he wanted to spend more time with his dad. While we lived in Johannesburg, Connor, at around the age of ten and a half, said to me, Mom, why can't I live with my dad? And I'm like, sure, where does this come from? He's only ten and a half, but he was just way too wise for his years. And I had that conversation with him and we spoke to his dad because Con used to get awards and stuff. Dad used to come up for his birthday and awards. And so he was involved in Connor's life, but obviously there was a lot of distance between the two of them. I sat, at the time, my career was up there. Um, and I was doing exceptionally well, and Cecil was offering retrenchment, voluntary retrenchment packages at the time, and I, and I, I then completed my form, and I said, oh, and they didn't want me to, to leave. And I thought it was all about Connor, mm. who was ten and a half years old, and always wanting the best for him, and always making sure I'd sacrifice myself for him. And we came back to Cape Town, and of course he had to adjust to school in Cape Town. He wrote the bullying process for his school in Johannesburg. And, and even at the time that we made the decision, I said to him, Connor, don't you want to just finish junior school, and then we'll go back to Cape Town? And the thought of living without Connor, or the distance, bit, although I travelled a lot for business, it was an average a week or two, sometimes three weeks, the distance between Connor and I wasn't going to purpose me. I needed to be where Connor was. So we came to Cape Town. Bridget left her job behind in Johannesburg and moved to Cape Town with Connor so that he could spend more time with his dad. They would eventually settle in Durbanville after moving around a bit. And Connor stayed with his dad during the week and then his mom on weekends. A diligent student as his teachers even at his funeral his, his primary school teachers were saying the same things his high school teacher said because he really had good grounding in his foundational years he was besides being a delightful person he had an amazing sense of very dry humor but filled with wit punched with wit and he was he had the biggest heart the kindest person I know he never knew how to say or, or speak badly 
or say anything unkind to anyone. He wasn't that kind of person. It was not in his nature. He loved to cuddle under my arm. It's always what he always liked to cuddle under my arm. And I know that even on a Friday when I used to fetch him at school, he would come running with his saxophone case around his neck, school backpack on his back, something, and he was a good chess player as well. Ch chess things or tennis, whatever, but he would run across the quad and his school friends would always say, hello, Connor's mom, and they would go and either run ahead and tell Connor your mom's here, or Connor would just come running across and kiss me in full view and hug me in full view of, of all his friends. We had a very close relationship. Connor would be Bridget's only child, and when she talks about his loving nature, it's clear that he was very special. It was that kind and loving nature that made it so hard for Bridget to understand why someone would want to harm her son. Then she tells me about his YouTube channel. He had his own YouTube channels. He was very proud of that. He would be preparing his YouTube material for his Monday Masterclass on YouTube and presented to his peers at school, would actually come to school early on a Monday, or look at what he had prepared for them. And it's almost as though he needed their input. So he was inclusive like that. But he's a very loyal person. He was loyal to me, he was loyal to his father, even though his dad never lived with us. Um, if there was a message I would put out there, it was to any parent in that situation, never bad mouth the other parent to your children. This is something that struck me about Bridget and Keith. They're not in a relationship. They weren't in one when they were raising Connor. But these people are the ideal example of co-parenting done well. You can see the respect that they have for each other. And I have no doubts that Connor did too. My son isn't here today, but I'm grateful that he had the opportunity to, to build a relationship with his father. They became very close. I know Keith also had his moments, his fun moments with Connor, more fun than anything else. Um, he was respectful to adults and anyone, didn't reg regardless of what your age was. He, his teachers from junior school, from high, at high school, his friends, well, all say the same things. He was the perfect gentleman. He would rush to the line because he had to be in time for his class. But if there was a girl behind him, he would step out and away and aside so that he could show the girl. He noticed small details about his, his peers, his friends, and compliment. He was, there's nothing, not because he's no longer here, negative that I can say about Connor. Bridget then goes on to tell us about some of Connor's talents. He was an extremely talented musician. You would have heard Bridget mention him carrying his saxophone around. He was also very good at drawing. And even his school friends mentioned that he should focus on his art. It wasn't a troublesome kind of person. He wasn't that kind of child. He, he confided in me when he needed to. He trusted me enough to confide in me. A child, children of that age have got their own ideas. And we often had very deep conversations at our dinner table was like 
oh my goodness, Connor, I gotta do this because I was also studying. And I said, Connor, I need to eat my books. And it's like, Mom, I really need to tell you this. And we'd sit and we'd chat for hours. He was the laziest child. He never cleaned dishes. He wouldn't even make his bed. He's, he just was that kind of child. He couldn't be perfect in every sense. So um, when he became uh, a teenager, he was very excited about that because when he was about um, 10 years old, he said, I'm going to, I'm 10, going on 13. He had a healthy relationship with everyone. And I can account for that. As all the people I knew, Connor knew. That's as far as I know. Even at school, I knew his friends were. Um, they used to sleep over at our place. They were decent children, respectable children. Connor was a leader quietly confident leader and they would make a lot of noise upstairs and I'd say like kind of gosh it's like 11 30 at night winds lights out and say mom I've got this and and he'd go upstairs and say guys 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 calm down my bedroom was directly below there and <laughs> so I couldn't sleep because um they were so noisy and busy but he even the way he managed his friends was with respect and I, I want to say, add to the gentleman thing again. We went out and I slipped but didn't fall, almost fell. And Connor then took me, because it was a gravel area and it was sort of sloped up. And Connor took my hand, put it through his arm, held my hand. Come, Mom, let me help. I'm like, who is this? Is this what 70 looks like? But that was the kind of person he was. He wasn't a demanding child. Kids at that age want labels and brands. Connor wasn't that child. We went overseas and we used to talk, he, he was very familiar about um, geopolitics. Again, it's something I, it's one of my passions. Um, and he understood and could identify Syrian people, which is very difficult in, in Turkey, for example. And he, his teachers can, can tell you that story, how he related and showed empathy um, for those people because they had nowhere to go. Um, Syria was shot up and they had to seek refuge in our neighboring countries. So he could relate that story exceptionally well. This is something that comes across in Connor's videos as well. He was really concerned about other people. And that's quite odd for a teenager. Most teenagers are quite selfish. We all were. But Connor seemed different. Again, this is another reason that Bridget would find it so difficult to comprehend that someone could hold enough contempt for her son to take his life. I'm a, I'm a proud mother. I'm proud of who Connor always was. I'm proud about the fact that he wouldn't even allow his peers in his class to disrespect their teachers. Um, I'm proud that he could stand up for who he was. That's how I say he was quietly confident. He was not a violent child. He didn't, wasn't exposed to it. He didn't know how to do that. Um, he couldn't harm an insect. He was totally innocent in that respect. I can't remember that Connor was naughty. And again, I'm just being a mommy here because I'm a bit biased in that respect. But we could agree to disagree like adults would. And he, he learned that at a young age. 
he learned that you you respect other people's views and opinions he was a, a strong debater and a very strong scrabbler <laughs> and you'd say to me mom especially mental we're going to play do scrabble tonight on a friday night and i'd like oh my gosh i'm gonna lose i always lost to him and he would try and be nice about it and funny about it and let me win another and the next round of scrabble he was very humble in the sense that nothing in life was a competition for him mommy on the other end he said oh how, um, how much did this one get and he said mom i don't know <laughs> you know he was that kind of person he didn't see it as a competition he was naturally good at what he did but he also respected his peers and and understood that it doesn't mean that I got the best. You know, he'd actually go to that person and he was a hugger. He'd go and hug them or have a chat with them or sit on the school bench and have a chat with them. He could pick his friends out if they were having problems and they would seek him out and because they knew they could trust him. He, he had great value, personal values. He had a good personal value system. And there's so much that makes me proud of Connor today. And if I could only be half the person that he was, I try and incorporate um, parts of Connor's life into my life, like learning to play the saxophone. I can't play it for the life of me. It's just a ball, ball. No, you know, it doesn't even make proper sounds. But I know that I'm going to get there. And I'll always remember Connor um, playing the saxophone and working so hard at it. His music teacher teaches me to play the saxophone and we talk about Connor all the time and we laugh all the time and his wife often says, did you learn anything today? Because <laughs> all you do is laugh. Because she knew about Connor and the kind of person he was through her husband who would come back and tell her about Connor. You know, and, um, and that's not an isolated case. Everybody speaks that way and fondly of him. So we miss him, I miss him terribly. As Bridget starts to get into the stories that reflect a point in her life after Connor, her pain is visible. It's not easy to listen to Bridget's words, but it can only be a million times more difficult to be speaking them. I don't know how we're going to get through this. All I know is that we need closure. And just to, to find my, my new normal. I battle, I'm still in therapy, in trauma therapy. I battle on a daily basis. It's frustrating because there's no progress. And I know he's trying to do what he can. It's frustrating that Connie's case doesn't receive priority. And it lacks consistency in more ways than one. Bridget then tells me that she has not yet been able to delve into the details of how Connor died. Later on, we'd have the discussion. And this would be revealed to her. Her shock will be palpable, but again, there's that disbelief that someone out there 
could have had such anger towards her beautiful son. And it's at this point that we get into what happened to Connor Isaacs and what has led four people who would have had no other reason to meet to be sitting in the same room talking about him. After Connor moved in with his dad, Keith decided that he wanted to move to a safer area. He worked long hours, and Connor would occasionally be at home alone for a few hours until Keith got home. So he wanted to make sure that his son was safe. He found a house in a Cape Town suburb called Glenhaven. It had been standing open for a little while before they moved in, so there was work to do. But Keith was happy with the area because it was a family street, with many of the residents being home during the day. School holidays were coming up, so he was glad that they could move in time for Connor to be safe while he was on holiday. On the 27th of March, 2019, Keith said goodbye to his son in the morning, knowing he would likely be playing on his Xbox for most of the day. Keith tried to phone Connor at 10 o'clock in the morning, but didn't get an answer. He didn't think that this was strange, because sometimes Connor would have his gaming earphones on and not hear the phone. He tried twice more during the day and got no answer. Keith got home at half past six that evening and called out for his son, perhaps getting ready to give him a telling off for not answering the phone. The house was silent. He made his way into Connor's room, and the sight that met him was something that no parent should ever have to witness. Fourteen-year-old Connor Isaacs had been strangled but he must have also struggled with his attacker because there was a blow to the back of his head and he'd experienced significant blood loss. Connor was dead. Bridget described receiving the phone call that changed her life. All I can saw here in my mind is Keith's voice screaming, Bridget, come, Connor, come. I was already in my PJs. I was planning to work. I don't know what happened. I had no idea what happened. He never said Connor had died or was murdered or anything. All I said to Keith was, call the paramedics and call the police. I had no cooking clue what had happened. I was three times over the speed limit driving from Durbanville to Balwell South. I I don't know what happened that night. Must have been deep shock, according to my therapist. Probably deep shock, but just the a mother's intuition. Something bad has happened, but I don't know what it is. And about halfway there, Keith phoned and he said, "Where are you?" And I said, "I'm on my way." I I couldn't get there soon enough. If there's one person between Keith and I, and I don't mean it unkindly as far as Keith is concerned, Connor would have reached out to me, he'd have called me if he was stuck. Um, or he'd call me and he'd say, Mom, Dad's working late tonight. Are you able to fetch me? And, and I would say, OK, no problem, I'll be there. And every Friday we had a date, we'd go to lunch, fetch him from school, go to lunch. Mm. I'd spend time with him. And the weekend before he died, 
they had just moved into to Glenhaven. And Con and I saw each other the Friday, the Saturday, and the Sunday when we went to buy linen. He wanted to have his room redone and decorated. And that Sunday, I sat next to him on his bed and we were chatting and laughing as we usually do and joking and finding light moments. A little knowing that it kind of wouldn't be there. The paramedics arrived and declared Connor dead at the scene. Detectives started their investigation. There was only one window on the house that didn't have burglar bars. It wasn't visible from the street, but that was where Connor's killer seemed to have gained access to the house. After killing Connor, the perpetrator removed some electronics and left the house leaving behind the scene that the child's father would find just hours later. Evidence was collected, including DNA, and although it took several months for the forensic evidence to be processed, just recently, Noel advised me that they have received all of the results. This delay would be part of a difficult process with police, which Noel would talk about more. But suffice to say that Connor Isaacs was murdered on the 27th of March 2019. And one year and one week later, we are still having this conversation. Bridget explained that all she wants is justice. And I do hope justice for Connor is served. I promised him that. I couldn't see him the night he died. I couldn't. Whether I was in shock or not, or what I felt, I don't even know. I don't know if I felt anger or I don't know what I felt. But I promised him, whatever in whatever condition I was, I promised him, you will receive justice. Even now, as I speak to you, I've had to learn to do, how to channel my anger. I don't know who to direct it at. Because I don't know who his murderers are. So I've had to find alternative ways of transferring my anger. Our grief is far from over. So anyone out there who knows anything about Connor or saw anything, I would appeal to them to come forward, to contact the private investigator. It's a safe space. Um and just not to be afraid of, of speaking out if you've seen anything. Just help us find justice for Connor. He deserves it. If you knew him well, you would understand that he deserves this. As Bridget moves away from the microphone and I get ready to speak to Keith, Noel is quiet next to me. Suddenly... He mentions that something that Bridget has said while she was talking about Connor has surprised him, and he thinks it may open up a new area to investigate. I won't say what it was, not because I don't want you to know, but because there just might be someone listening, and we'd like them to wonder. What light bulb went off in Noel's head at that moment? What does he know now 
that you didn't want him to. Keith moves into the chair I've set up for recording. His face is tense. I asked him earlier if he thought he'd be able to talk about that night, about finding Connor. Looking at this father's grief-stricken expression, I know that there's no possibility he can go back there. My conversation with Keith turns into some offshoots with Bridget, and I discover that Keith has children from a marriage which ended with the death of his wife from cancer. This man has an intimate relationship with pain. And yet, here he sits, ready to talk about his son, to a complete stranger, in the hopes that someone listening will be able to help. My name is Keith Abers. I'm the father of Connor Isaacs. I'll try and uh, do my best to share some of the memories that I have of Connor. Um, my earliest memory of Connor was the day he was born, um, remembering the, the nurse handing Connor to me as a newborn and looking into my child's face. It was the most amazing feeling. I still remember the way he looked when he was born. Um, and then I remember having, handing, handing him back to the nurse. And then as time went by, the, there were days when we would visit Connor at hospital because he was, he was premature. Um, I think he weighed about 750 grams when he was born. So he had to... Uh, 1.2 kgs. Okay, my mistake. my mistake. My <laughs> mistake. We laugh as Bridget interrupts to correct Keith on Connor's birth weight. At the time, it was a funny moment. But listening to it now, everything seems tinged with sadness. He was in an incubator and we used to visit him regularly. Bridget and I would go and see him and we built up quite a relationship with the nurses and, you know, there were times when we would joke. Yeah, that was part of the memories of Connor as a little baby and and then as time went by, I remember he, he lived with his mom in Pinelands and um, I remember Connor sitting on the couch with his grandfather and his grandfather joking with him and Connor just looking at him and smiling at him and I was quite amazed that even as a little baby, Connor was, he was showing signs of Believe it or not, maturity. Um, he, he, he just seemed to be so um, ahead of his time, and he was a friendly child. And I have only good memories of Connor. I remember when he came to stay with me in Pinelands, and he went to school at Pinelands Primary, which is like just across the road. And I remember going to work. Um, and then receiving a call uh, from somebody unknown and then I discovered that it was somebody who was working at the flat and they had let Connor in at the security gate and Connor just had a way of getting along with everybody um, even the workmen who worked at the flat he, he got this person to open up the gate for him because there was some confusion about the keys or something and this person let Connor in and because I was at work I couldn't rush off and and see to Connor and eventually Connor ended up spending the day with one of the neighbors and became friends with him so 
He made friends easily. He was well-liked. He was a friendly child, a happy child. Yeah, I have good memories of Connor. I remember taking him to the beach. I remember at Mountain Lagoon, we were sitting with him once on the beach and um, joking around with him. And then Connor, we said to Connor, um, Connor, you got you got to wear the sunblock because if you don't wear it, you're gonna you're gonna get burnt and you're gonna you're gonna turn brown. And Connor said, I don't want to be brown, and we all had a good laugh about it. <laughs> and then yeah, we we had some good times with Connor. Then Keith reveals his regret at believing that he was doing the right thing and having it turn out to be such a horrendous path to have gone down. While there's absolutely no way he could have known what would happen just one week after they moved into that house in Glenhaven, he's still struggling with the way things turned out. Yeah, I really thought that moving to Glenhaven um, would be a happy experience for us, but it wasn't to be. yeah, I have a lot of regrets as well, um, but I think Connor had a good life. He had a happy life. Um, it came to an unfortunate end, an untimely end. But I think um, Connor's mother and myself, we, we gave him a good life. We did whatever we could, as any parent would do. And yeah, we miss him a lot. We We don't sometimes don't know what to do with ourselves because it's, it's just so painful. Um, you look at parents around you and they're also happy. They have the children with them, but, you know, we realize that Connor's never going to come back again and it hurts. It really, it's hard, but we have to carry on. Keith and Bridget asked to be excused. Their pain is raw again. I thank them for meeting with me. And we all voice our shared hope that this podcast will somehow move Connor's case forward. And then I sit and talk to Noel, their private investigator. He's a tall man, and I've no doubt that his presence would be intimidating to anyone he's hunting. His role in the interview is to share more about the investigation, the role that police have played, and he has a message for Connor's killer. My name is Noel Pratton. Um, I'm a private investigator who assists quite a lot of people with their various cases, especially with the SAPS, need a little help. And I'm not saying that because the SAPS are useless, but because they frequently are understaffed, underpaid, and very definitely drowning in work. Late last year, uh, Keith came to me, he contacted me, uh, having heard about me from various other cases that I was involved with. Um, I was involved with the Megan Kramer case, and I was involved at the time with the Uyenene case, which was at that point still, well, I took it on as a missing persons case. It only became a murder later on when we were able to confirm that the body that we had uh, was in fact her. And uh, he approached me and he said, look, you know, it's been three months. Uh, the uh, the police handling Connor's case have been ineffective. Uh, 
uh, and uncommunicative. And, you know, he had the complaint that he would go frequently to the police station and he would have to be the one to initiate communication, which was a little bit of a, kind of rang alarm bells in my head, not in terms of bad service, but in terms of that I saw this as being a case of another officer that was just in over his head as far as hundreds of cases were concerned and things like that. And I then took the case and it immediately became very personal to me because it's a 14-year-old and because you should feel safe and your children should feel safe in their home. My stepson was 14 at the time when I took the case. So, you know, I kept having him in mind. I was, uh, gee, you know, what would happen? How would I feel if this happened to him? also have grandchildren and they are heading towards the same sort of age category. So when I took the case on, the first thing that I did was to go and see the investigating officer. There's one Sergeant Alexander. And the message that I was getting from him was, he's very professional. He's, he's gone through all the motions. But Somehow, I just didn't feel like, I didn't feel like he was 100% there on the case. That I don't want to criticize him, but on the other hand, it just felt to me like he was shut down when it came to communicating with me. And as a result of that, you know, he really didn't share much with me about what was on the docket. He shared nothing about what's in the pathology reports. Uh, shared nothing about the ballistics in the case. And normally, I've got a reputation amongst the police for working very closely with them rather than working against them, which is possibly what some private detectives do. I believe that my police colleagues are well qualified. And, you know, that some of them are very experienced and they can really do their jobs, but they need some help because they are overwhelmed. So, When I spoke to this guy, it was a bit of a shock to me that he wasn't sharing anything. And I went to his captain, uh, Captain Peter Lotre, and I really got the straight down gen from him about what the state was of that police station, which is um, that the colonel of CID had at that time already been on sick leave for a year that the captain had been acting CO for all of that time with no help whatsoever, and that we're, they are supposed to be having something in the region of 19 detective on, on strength, they're right now sitting with eight. So it's an impossible situation, you know. How do you work in that, in that situation? So it, because of that, it was even more of a shock to me that Alexander wasn't grabbing the help he was being offered. I started looking into the case. I went and visited the scene, which, of course, by that stage, I mean, the whole house had been repainted and things like that. But I do that in order to get the feel. I'm a very kind of spiritual person. Sounding like I'm making kind of hocus pocus, but it, it's not like that. But I do get the feel of a place, and I get the feel of kind of what happened there. 
And there were immediately things there that I noticed that hadn't been shared with me by the police. For example, there was only one window there that didn't have almost impregnable burglar bars in it, on it, okay? And that was a particular small window in the house. I won't mention the, the location because that's... The point is, the immediate thing that came to my mind was you had to know the house in order to know where that window was. So that was immediately a point that the police had not discussed with me. Then other, other certain things kept cropping up. And the way I decided to go forward with this case was to talk to people around the periphery of the case more than anything else. I kept at the same time trying to go back to Alexander and he was never available. Almost never. Neither was his captain. For months. And during those months, neither Keith, nor Bridget, nor myself ever got a phone call from them. So the issues that were going on in that police station were obviously affecting this case. What I ultimately did was I went to the office of Brigadier Tele. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. But he is the, what they call the DPC, the Deputy Provincial Commissioner for criminal investigations. In other words, is the ultimate boss of every detective in the province. And what really shocked me, because I've worked with DPCs from other provinces, is that this DPC really shut down on me as well. Uh, he was very uncommunicative. He promised to send off a couple of emails to help the forensic process along, because by, at that point in time, we still hadn't received certain reports back from the labs. But there was, no, there was no comeback, there was no communication, there was no report back of any kind. So essentially, we and, well, we, I mean myself and the parents of the child, you know, were feeling very isolated by the police. That's very unusual because normally the police work very closely with me, so... So long story short is we do have some possible suspects in mind. Can't mention names, of course, or anything like that at the moment, but there are certain aspects of this case that just have not been, com it's not been communicated to us by the police that they have taken cognizance of these aspects. They may well have, but they haven't told us about it. So we're working in the dark instead of being able to work in a partnership. So what, we've, what I've ultimately done now is I have contacted General Beaton's office. Now, General Beaton is the cluster commander for the group of five or six police stations that include Belleville South. And he's on leave at the moment, but he gave orders for Lieutenant Colonel Strauss, who is one of his subordinates in his office, to basically take hold of the case and you know, take a close look at it and take charge. And we're in that process right now. I've been to see the colonel, and she has asked me for extra time to, to look over the case, which is fantastic because the file is very thick, so obviously a lot has been done. But she's going to come back to me and give me feedback as to what's being done so that we can create a plan going from there. My appeal 
to the public is this. This happened on a typical school holiday afternoon. The people in the area know which afternoon it is, because obviously they knew that someone had been murdered. You know. Somebody saw something. It's school holidays, folks. There were children playing in yards, I can guarantee you that. There must have been people that walked past at some point. I'm sending out an appeal to anybody who saw any movement around that house or in that street or in the adjacent street because the house is near the corner, okay, at all on that day. Anybody that was a stranger that walked past or drove past, some strange car, folks, anything will help at this point, okay. We have our thoughts as to who might be possible suspects, but we need the help of the public. As investigators, we can never live without the public. It's not possible. So I'm saying to the public out there, come forward to me. I'm going to give my cell phone number right now. And I can tell you that you will be totally protected. You are safe. My cell phone number is 084-762-5913. You can send me a please call me. I'll phone you back. I will meet with you in secret. I will do whatever it is that is necessary to protect you. But we have a young boy here who needs your help. This family needs closure. So I'm putting an appeal out there and saying, please help us, public. Somebody saw something, even if it's just your child. I'll listen to your three-year-old who was playing outside. Because they generally have clearer memories than you and I do. And I'm going to send another message out there. And this message is to the murderer in case you're listening. There's something that you need to know. I've been in this game for 33 years. And I'm coming for you. And I'm never, ever, ever going to stop. So if you want a little bit of mercy, a little bit of consideration in your court case, I would quietly suggest that you come forward now. You also have just heard my phone number. I suggest you give me a call. Because it's not going to go well with you when we catch you. That is not a threat in terms of that we're going to do something illegal to you. But I promise you this. Luyando Boeta who was the Uyenene murderer last year. Uyenene was also my case. He got three life sentences. Don't expect less from me this time. As I drive away from that interview, I feel the sadness that's welled up in me as I listen to Connor's parents turn into anger. On the 27th of March, 2019, Connor Isaacs was looking forward to the school holidays. He planned on playing Xbox. He wanted to be a paleontologist. On the 27th of March 2019, someone decided that what they wanted was far more important than what this 14-year-old boy wanted. They entered a house and brutally took his life, 
leaving his battered body for his father to find. So that now, he doesn't just have to live with his little boy being gone. He has to live with that sight, that horrific scene that's forever burned into his memory. The police have been slow to act, for all the reasons that Noel explained. With him now driving the movement, I truly hope that we will soon see results. What we need, though, what Connor needs, is for the residents of Glenhaven to think and reach within themselves and do what is right. You might be listening to this while in lockdown, protecting yourselves and your family from COVID-19. Connor didn't have the opportunity to protect himself. No one gave him that chance. And now as you sit in your house, in that street that he was killed in, or maybe just around the corner, with your sealed lips, you take away his chance of justice. He was only your neighbour for a week, but you don't easily forget the day a 14-year-old boy is murdered in your street. And if you do forget, perhaps you should remember that tomorrow it could be your child. I feel extremely honoured to have been able to tell Connor's story, and I'm grateful to his mom and dad, as well as Noel Pratton, for trusting me with this. I know that his parents will eventually find, as Bridget calls it, their new normal. But that shouldn't have to include wondering who killed their child. If somehow, the person or people responsible for this crime do come across this podcast, please be assured that just as Noel will never give up, now that I've met Connor through his parents, neither will I. I haven't forgotten Amachle, Marie, Tracy, or any other so-called invisible victim that I've covered on my podcast, and I'm not going to forget Connor either. I may not have the biggest platform, but I have a community of listeners who are just as passionate as I am, and that is where your problem lies. Because we will not stop talking about Connor. We will not stop telling people his story. And eventually, one day very soon, you're going to get a knock on your door. Are you ready? Thank you for listening to episode 24, The Murder of Connor Isaacs. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on the app that you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I hope all of you are keeping safe and healthy. I'm pushing to get as much content out as possible for you to keep you busy. So instead of saying I'll be back next week, for now I'll say I'll be back as soon as possible. Until then, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon.